full um, material for us as we live life as the church. And so this doctrine, this theology, this gospel serves as the foundation uh, of our relationships with one another. So I'm going to start, I'm going to read verse 11 and then go through, I don't know where I'm going to stop because verse 15 begins a very, very long sentence here in Ephesians 1. So starting in verse 11 of Ephesians 1, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's the end of the sentence. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in verse 15, Paul says, for this reason. When he says for this reason, he's talking about what he has taught us in verses 11 through 14. For this reason, because of what I have just said, I'm going to say what I'm about to say. So in verse 13 is when he begins describing the Ephesian church. Remember in verse 11, when he says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, he's talking about himself and the Jews. They were predestined according to the purpose of him. And we know that those who out of Israel are chosen in Christ, or the ones who are predestined according to the purpose of him. And in verse 13, he describes the Ephesians specifically. In him, you, the Ephesian church, the believers in Ephesus, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now remember, we talked about these means of grace, these things that we do as the church that God has established for the growing of our faith. That of these things, there is only one that is effectual for the salvation of his people, right? The proclamation and the hearing of the gospel. That's what Paul teaches us in Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Then Paul speaks of this word of truth that we have heard. When he calls it the word of truth, it means that we can be confident in its truth. It means that we have security in the promises given in the word of God. 
Now, not only is this gospel, this word of truth, sufficient for our salvation, for the salvation of his people, this gospel is simple, understandable. We talked about not putting complex intellectual requirements on belief. We're going to get into that more today because Paul extols the faith of the Ephesian church. And we have this work of the Spirit. You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You believed in him, Christ, and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And we talked about two distinct works of the Spirit. Right? Remember, we talked in John 3 about how the Spirit blows when and where and it wishes, and the Spirit is responsible for this new birth. The Spirit is responsible for giving life to your dead flesh. The Spirit is also responsible for establishing the security of your faith. It is responsible for growing you and maturing you in your faith. So regeneration and faith are gifted by the Spirit, but the security of faith, the confidence in those promises of the gospel, are further established by the Holy Spirit. This is the sealing that Paul talks about there in verse 13. And we also talked about, and we've talked about this several times before, uh, how we cannot rationalize God's sovereignty. We cannot rationalize God's election of his people. Right? Because the moment we can rationalize why God chose me or why God chose you, it is as if we have earned it, right? Because that's what the flesh wants to do. That's what all the false gospel, the cults of our culture, the cults of history, that's what they have all tried to do is to rationalize their salvation. And then in verse 15, for this reason, and because I have heard of your faith in the Lord, Jesus. So Paul has heard of the faith of the Ephesian church. And he speaks of the Ephesian church collectively. He speaks of all of them. And I think this is important because we are one body. We are one community. We are unified under one head, one faith. Paul does not speak of any individual in the Ephesian church. He doesn't say, because I have heard of the great faith of your elder Timothy, because I have heard of the great work that your deacons are doing, he speaks of the whole church in Ephesus. Because I have heard of your faith, Ephesian church. Your faith. The faith of those who have very little faith and yet true faith in Christ. And the faith of those who have great faith, great maturity. Those who have done great work for the kingdom. Those who have done little work for the kingdom. He has heard of your faith, church. Our culture has moved away from this community-centric understanding of church. Our culture has moved away from this understanding of the intimacy that we have as believers. It has moved away from identifying churches by the faith of its people. 
in favor of sort of a, I'll call it a personality-centric view of church. Right? Churches these days are most often identified by their teacher. And that's why I'm pointing out that Paul did not call out Timothy here in verse 15. He calls out Timothy in the letter where Timothy's name is the title, because that was a letter to Timothy. But this is a letter to the Ephesian church. And Paul does not identify this church by who their pastor is or by who their greatest members are. Right? Church are all, churches these days are identified by their primary teacher. Right? You always hear about Joel Osteen's church. Right? Does anyone know the name of Joel Osteen's church? Luke does. <laughs> or Mark Driscoll's new church. Remember, Mark Driscoll had a church in Washington, and now he has a church in Arizona. Or, and I've heard this one before, directed at me, oh, you go to James Tippin's church. And there's nothing wrong with making a factual statement. Yes, I go to Tippin's church. Though a more precise statement, a more helpful statement might be something like, Tippin's is one of the teachers at my church. So what we see across our culture are cults of personality that gather around different teachers. And they become identified with that teacher rather than with the community they are a part of. It's one of the reasons it makes sense to have a 15,000-member church. Right? All these members can be identified with you know, the one talking head that they see on the screen at one of their 20 campuses. If you have 15,000 people in your church, you can't be identified as being a member of that church based on who else is a member, right? But each and every one of you here, I know you. I want to get to know you more. We are identified together as one church. So we see these cults of personality that gather around teachers. And it even happens in the Reformed world, right? Do you know how many grown men with beards I have seen turn into fangirls around John Piper? Grown men giggling at the sight of their favorite teacher. people who identify with teachers and not with their churches. To contrast this, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians because Paul talks about exactly this phenomenon. To the Ephesian church, Paul writes, I've heard of your faith. To the Corinthian church, Paul writes, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Right? The themes of Corinthians and Ephesians are very different, right? Ephesians is a letter of encouragement, and Corinthians is a letter of correction. 1 Corinthians 3, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, 
Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Right? I'm nothing. James is nothing. The teachers you listen to, we are nothing. Nothing but servants, workers like each of you. We've been assigned a task to teach the people of God. Now, this is not inspired, but we have the words of Paul here that are inspired, but sometimes I like to imagine what sort of inflection Paul would have used were he speaking these words to the church. And I cannot get out of my mind this image of Paul mocking the Corinthians. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Christ. And there's nothing wrong with being encouraged by listening to teachers, right? There's nothing wrong with listening to preaching online or preachers who are not your own pastor, right? And I know there are many listening to me right now online, and they do not have a church home because it's not accessible. I'm not necessarily talking about them. This online preaching, these talking heads you see on a screen, it wasn't done for you. It's like stopping by a vending machine for a bag of chips or a Twinkie. It's tasty, and it makes you feel good, but it cannot sustain you. The guy you are watching online probably didn't pray for you. He didn't think of you when he was putting his sermon together. Now, there are people who are listening online who have been listening to us for a long time. Um, I know who you are, and I did pray for you. I did think of you. In each of you here, I thought of each of you. I prayed for you. The teaching in the local church is less like a vending machine and more like a meal prepared for you by someone who knows what you need, knows what you like. My mom invites me over for dinner. She loves to make my favorite things. That is the teaching of the local church in contrast with watching someone you don't know teach. It can be valuable. There are faithful teachers and you can benefit from it, but it is not the same as the teaching found in the assembly together with your brothers and sisters in the assembly. Right, and this is 
burned us as a church before, hasn't it? Most of you know what I am talking about. We've had people move here on account of James' faithful preaching. And that was the only reason they came. Many times I was told, that doesn't sound like this person's preaching. Well, I'm a follower of Apollos. There's more to being part of this assembly than listening to faithful preaching. There's more to being a part of a church than saying amen when the pastor is faithful. And Paul tells us what that is here in Ephesians. It's not just that we have faith in the Lord Jesus, but Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Paul didn't praise the Ephesians because he heard that Timothy was a great preacher. And he didn't praise the Ephesians only because they had faith in the gospel. He heard that they were collectively, as one body, faithful. And he heard that they loved one another. So there's more than being part of this church than listening to faithful preaching. And Paul establishes for us here the foundation of the entire Christian life. Faith in Christ and love for the saints. Love for the assembly. Right, you remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God, and the second is like it, love your neighbor. But it's this love for the people of God in the assembly from which love for all people more broadly flows. This love for the saints establishes the bedrock upon which we go out and love our neighbor. It is the foundation of the Christian life. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love for the saints. Now, we have spent some time already in Matthew 18, and we're going to go back there. Because... There's something important I want us to get out of it. Remember, we talked about causing little children to fear. That's what Jesus is talking about here in the beginning of Matthew 18. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 6, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So this causing of little children to fear is a failure to love. It is a failure to love one another in the assembly. Remember, the two things that we talked about were suspicion in terms of you know, behavior and good works and sin, and suspicion in terms of doctrine. And that we can place burden to perform in these things upon our brothers and sisters and cause them to fear. Then when we do that, it destroys the childlike faith that Jesus talks about here in Matthew 18. So we're going to go into more detail and talk about what that looks like, how we can love one another as it relates to sin, 
and as it relates to doctrinal error. First thing we talked about was legalism and works. The most common form this takes is you might hear someone say something like, well, a real Christian wouldn't blank. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you will know that every Christian has blank, right? I'm reasonably certain that no one in here is guilty of literally murdering anyone. Right, but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount indicts us for murder when he says that if you have harbored hate in your heart for your brother, you are guilty of murder. Right, Jesus doesn't distinguish. You might also see uh, this take the form of something like, uh, you know, real Christian goes to church. Real Christian wouldn't skip church. And, yeah, there's a sense in which, you know, it's very important for the Christian to attend the assembly, right? That's the instructions of Hebrews 10, of Hebrews 6, that we not make a habit of forsaking the assembly. The analogy that I like is that, uh, yes, there can be a Christian who is not a part of the assembly, But in the same way that the assembly is established for your security, for your maturity, for your protection, a zebra who has been separated from the herd, getting mauled by cheetahs, is still a zebra, right? The church is established for your protection, for your security, for your confidence, Now, this legalism in this works, this also looks like judging the conversion status of someone based on their works or their lack thereof. Looks like holding a measuring stick of behavior up to them and judging their profession of faith based on that. Right, and this type of legalism really takes two forms. There's this idea of using works as a measuring stick for salvation. You can't be a Christian if you blank, right? A real Christian wouldn't do this. A real Christian wouldn't vote Democrat or Republican. Or suspicion about someone's salvation based on their outward behavior. The saying I like to, to sort of paint the issue here to show you how absurd this is, is to ask the question, how much good works is enough good works? To know that we've done enough good works to have assurance of our not works-based salvation. How much good works is necessary to have confidence? How much sin is enough that we should start doubting our salvation? When we start looking for those things in other people, we fall into the trap of legalism. Now, legalism also takes the form of uh, when it would otherwise be appropriate to make a claim about what is right and wrong, we assert that Scripture regulates behavior that it doesn't. Right? Because Scripture does regulate behavior in some sense. 
right? There's a time and a place for this is right and this is wrong, right? Remember 2 Timothy 3, Scripture is profitable for rebuking and for training. It tells you what behavior is wrong, and it tells you what you should do. There's a time and a place for that. I'm going to mention Titus 3 here in a little bit, because it tells tells me how I am supposed to exhort you unto good works. I can tell you, I can use Scripture to tell you what behaviors are consistent with Scripture, right? Concerning righteousness and which behaviors aren't. But it's when I make a claim that something is right or wrong, that Scripture doesn't regulate, that I step into this trap of legalism. It's when I try to regulate what Scripture does not regulate. I'm going to read two sections out of our Statement of Faith because it does a good job of explaining the issue here. I don't do this often, but our Statement of Faith has a section on Christian liberty, the freedom that we have in Christ says that God alone is the Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. This means is that in Christ, we are free from sin. And we are free, not only are we free from the demands of the law, that is the demand that we die, we are free from the commandments of men that scripture doesn't contain. Right? If you decide to tell me that I can't wear a blue shirt don't have to listen to you. (laughs) Scripture doesn't tell me what color my shirt has to be. So I am free from the burden of legalism. But at the same time, this is also from our statement of faith, it says that they who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust as they do, they thereby pervert the main design of the great grace of the gospel to their own destruction. So they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of all of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. The point here is that in the assembly, we must be able to serve God without fear. We must be free from the burden of looking and acting a certain way beyond what Scripture has asked of us. Right, Scripture does tell us what is right and wrong, what is sin and what is not. Unfortunately, Scripture tells us how to deal with it in the context of the local church. Flip over to Titus. Let's see, starting in verse 4 of Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul did not give any instructions about works there, did he? No, we establish the confidence that we have in the gospel of Christ. And then in verse 8, he says, The saying is trustworthy, that is, the things he just said about the work of Christ are trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. He's instructing Titus, the elder in Crete, to insist on these things, the gospel of Christ, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. There you go. That's Paul's instruction for how the elders of the church are to exhort you unto good works. Not to tell you what is wrong and to cause you to fear. The way I am to encourage the assembly unto good works is to further establish the confidence we have in the truth of Christ the work of Christ insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works these things are excellent and profitable for people now sin will happen right Because we are not all perfect. We all still have that little bit of flesh that lives on that we continually fight by the power of the Spirit. So back in Matthew 18, in this very same discourse where Jesus speaks about not causing children to fear, he tells us how to address sin in the assembly. Not through judgment and through legalism, through putting a burden of works upon one another. But in verse 15, he says, back in Matthew 18, now verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So remember we talked about means of grace, the things that the church does for the growing, the maturity of your faith. Right here, this church discipline, this is one of these means of grace. Remember, one of the characteristics we observed about these means of grace is that they were generally given only in the context of the local assembly. This is the only one that is really given outside of the context of the local church, though it is still given through the local assembly. So what we see there in verse 17, is that all the other means of grace are then removed from the one under discipline. These non-salvific means of grace are removed from the one under discipline. 
right? But it takes several steps to get there, right? First, if your brother sins against you, go to him alone. That's 99.9% of the church discipline that occurs, right? We have this fake, errored view of church discipline that it looks like, uh, you know, these bringing people in front of the church and shaming them and kicking them out in a public way. When That's not even what it looks like when we get to this very last step. But when you and I talk together, when we talk about what we're dealing with, what we're struggling with, that's church discipline, right? That's this first step of church discipline, and 99% of all church discipline in the church never gets past that. But when we do get to the end of this, verse 17, our brother who has sinned against us does not listen even to the church. Scripture instructs us to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, which Jesus here is addressing the Jews, and that has a particular meaning to them. It's not that we, you know, treat them as a friend. We just don't hang out with them as much, right? Gentile and tax collector to the Jews means we don't speak to them anymore. In this last step of church discipline, it almost appears to function as one of these salvific, as a salvific means of grace, right? We treat them as an unbeliever, and when we repent, Scripture says that it is as though we have gained a brother. To the one who is cast out of the church, grace can be given through the proclamation of the gospel. If they are actually unregenerate, not converted at the time, grace can only be given through this proclamation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, speaking of one who is elect, who may be cast out of the church, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In church discipline, in this casting out, God gives grace to the one who is elect. Paul instructs us to, for a time, allow them to suffer the consequences of the sins of their flesh so that they may be saved in the day of the Lord. At every step of this process, the aim is not retribution. Church discipline is not about punishment. Church discipline is about reconciliation. It's about restoring the intimacy that we had. If you have sinned against me or I against you, we must come back together in unity. We must be reconciled to one another. This is the aim of church discipline. This is exercised under the oversight of the elders of the church. That's the important thing here. Right? One of the functions of the elder is to oversee. 
They have been given some measure of authority over the church, and this is one of the things that the elders of the church must oversee. And something else, church discipline is the only works-related measuring stick we're ever given. Right? Remember that question, how much good works is enough good works to have confidence? Church discipline is the only measuring stick we're given in Scripture that's related to good works. Right? The instruction of Christ here in Matthew 18 is that the one who is cast out is to be treated as an unbeliever. But at every step for the purpose of grace, for the purpose of reconciliation, for the purpose of repentance. And the other thing we talked about when it comes to causing children to fear is this suspicion about doctrine, the suspicion about what you believe, what errors might be lurking in the dark corners of your mind. I won't dwell too long on what it looks like. Remember, the gospel is simple. The gospel is pure. The gospel is understandable by children. We must avoid putting complex intellectual requirements on the faith. And Paul gives clear instructions on how to deal with doctrinal errors in the church. And it doesn't actually have anything to do with them being there, right? Because there are going to be doctrinal errors in the church. There are doctrinal errors in this church. I'm wrong about something. You are wrong about something. Probably lots of things. And it's not the presence of these doctrinal errors that Paul is so much worried about, is it? It is when one causes division in the assembly over doctrine that Paul jumps in. Back in Titus 3, Paul gives some instructions. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. This is 3 verse 9. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. It is when these disagreements over doctrine become a point of division that Paul suddenly becomes concerned and gives instructions to the elders to handle it. But doctrine divides, right? We've heard that saying before, doctrine divides. Of course, Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Right here he is speaking about the person and work of Christ. He's speaking about himself. He's speaking about this simple gospel. That is what divides. It is this true, simple, pure gospel that sets father against son and daughter against mother. Right? Together as a church, we affirm certain doctrinal propositions. We have a statement of faith. We have these things that we teach and we believe. And you can be a part of this assembly and disagree, 
this assembly and disagree with one or more of those propositions. But the moment you try to draw someone away from those things, which we have sort of collectively agreed upon as being the testimony of Scripture, particularly when they relate to the doctrines of the gospel, that is when we become guilty of division. That is what Paul condemns in Titus 3. We can disagree, we can discuss, we can have debates about doctrine, and we can do it in love. And it has to happen. It's going to happen as we learn more about one another, as we talk about different doctrinal things, as we learn more together about Scripture, we're going to disagree about those things. But because we are the church, because we are one body, we begin from a place of assuming that you have made a true profession of faith. We must avoid relating these disagreements about doctrine to the legitimacy of your faith. We assume that our brothers and sisters are starting from a place of a true profession. All right, the important thing here in Titus 3, whose responsibility is the directions of Titus 3? When Titus, in, when Paul instructs to warn them once and then twice and then have nothing more to do with them, who's he talking to? It's written to Titus, the elder of the church. The letter to Titus is instructions for the elders of the church. It's guidance for the elders of the church as they govern the churches. So this exercise of church discipline as it relates to doctrinal division is within the purview of the authority of the elders. In both of these cases, matters of practical and doctrinal issues I encourage you to defer frequently and quickly to the elders of the church for wisdom and guidance because that is one of the things Scripture has established the office for. When it comes to your brother sinning against you, the encouragement is clear. Back in Matthew 18, let's see... Back in Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said, Uh oh. It's Peter again. Peter said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? The fact that Peter said seven times means that that's a lot for Peter. (laughs) To forgive his brother seven times seemed to Peter to be a lot. Jesus said, no, Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. This gives us the outline of how we are to approach church discipline. Seven times? No, Peter. Your Bible might say 77 times. My Bible says 70 times 7. It's 490 times. And I will admit, some of us might need that 490 because 77 won't be enough. (laughs) Right? 
we are going to continue to struggle with sin as long as we breathe in this flesh. I am going to need some of you to forgive me 490 times. Maybe not you sitting in the front, but I have a wife and children in the back of the room. I will need their forgiveness probably more than 70 times 7. So as we work out these issues of doctrine, these issues of practice, in the context of the church, we first and foremost forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Right, because we're guilty of the same sin. All right, James said if you've violated the law once, you're guilty of the whole thing. Right, but even those very same sins that my brother has brought against me, I am guilty of them. And so it's mishandling these issues of sin, these issues of doctrinal error, that I think are the two more insidious ways in which we can fail to love one another in the assembly. Right? Obviously, we can go about actively sinning against one another through gossip, slander, other sins. And Scripture equips us to deal with these things through church discipline under the oversight of the elders. But it is this suspicion under the guise of legalism under the guise of thinking you're righteous when you're not, that we can fail to love one another in the assembly. Paul heard about the Ephesians' faith. He heard about their love toward all the saints. Finally, in verse 16, Paul gives an exhortation to the church, and he gives an example to follow. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So we've just got this little note of encouragement from Paul to the Ephesians. For us, it's a reminder of how we can love and encourage one another in the assembly. We can pray for one another. Right? And not just in a general sense. But when you pray, and you should, when you pray, pray for your brothers and sisters by name. Even if you don't know what's going on, you don't know what they need, pray for your brothers and sisters by name. Thank God for them. Thank them for them. Thank each other for being who you are. Right? It is this sort of encouragement that helps us to grow together in love. These little notes of encouragement. Follow Paul's example. I'm praying for you. I give thanks to God for you. And we'll get to this next week. 
Paul prays that the Father would give you spirit, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Continue to pray for one another, church. This is one of those means of grace. We pray together, we pray alone, but we constantly remember one another in our prayers. Right? And prayer doesn't have to be this formal thing, right? Prayer doesn't have to be getting on your knees and all of a sudden speaking in the King James. Right? I've always laughed at people who say, man, I just can't read the King James when they really excelled in praying in the King James. You've heard that before. Prayer is just a conversation that we have with God. It can happen in your head. It can happen out loud. Pray for one another. And pray together. Speaking of prayer, let's pray. God, I thank you for my church. I thank you for these people. These people of faith. God, I thank you for your spirit. That through it we may grow together in love. That together we may learn more about you, that we may learn more about the work of Christ, and that we may learn how to love one another. God, we thank you for your word that through it we can see and understand the work of Christ. And go with us as we take of your table. Let this little wafer in this juice not only be a reminder but as Paul calls it a participation in the blood of Christ let us experience the propitiation for our sin God we praise you for your work and we pray these things in the name of Christ amen